You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for A Veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. My guest today is Alan Gravel. During Alan's first assignment to Vietnam, he flew a caribou. No, no, no. Not the famous Arctic reindeer. But to do anything, go anywhere, Canadian built the Havilland C-7 Caribou Stall Aircraft, S-T-O-L. Stall meaning short takeoff and landing. Alan, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, Pete. Glad to be here. Uh, glad you could join us. Uh, let's do the general stuff first. Alan, uh, tell me a little bit about where you were born and raised and maybe your childhood and high school and college. I was born in Alexandria, Louisiana. My, my um, mom and I was the third out of four children. I had an older sister, an older brother, and a younger brother. I grew up uh, in Alexandria, went to um, uh, elementary and junior high school there, went to Bolton High School, graduated there, went to Louisiana Tech in North Louisiana um, uh, to study engineering, got a degree in civil engineering, uh, met my future wife there. <clears throat> went on to graduate school at the University of Texas. After a year in uh, graduate school, uh, Sherry graduated at Louisiana Tech, and we got married. And then uh, after graduate school, went into the Air Force. All right. So so you definitely love Cajun food, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm, my family wasn't of Cajun origin, but we were of French origin, which is interesting Uh we came from France to Canada to the Montreal area and uh, and Quebec area and then to New Hampshire and then from New Hampshire to Louisiana, but not part of the the Cajun, uh, the Acadian uh, migration, which happened at a yeah. different time. There's big French influence in uh, Louisiana. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, uh, now, what stirred your interest in the Air Force, Alan? Well, you know, my I had never really thought a lot about uh, military or anything. I had pr- probably, if had not been for the Vietnam War, would never have served in the military, probably. But my uh, my dad's brothers, uh, several of them had been pilots and, and flown. One of them was killed in a B-24 accident at uh, Fort Bliss. Uh, he, um, my mother's brothers all served in the military. My dad was uh, diagnosed with diabetes, uh, type 1 diabetes, when he was 16 years old, so he never served in the military. He was a civil defense uh, block captain or some such thing when they were doing the blackouts in World War II and all that, but he never served in the military. And he died when I was 10, so we grew up, you know, the four of us grew up the children of a widow, widow, and uh, we were not, we didn't have a whole lot. Uh, material things, but we had a good, strong family, and and uh, my mom kept us involved in the church, and we were we went to we were in Alexandria. They had very, very good schools. Bolton High School was one of the best high schools in Louisiana at the time, and so we got a good education, which my mother was very high on, and uh, we had a fairly uh, good childhood, given the fact that we grew up without a dad. My uncles and my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, tried as best they could to fill the gap. But as you know, it can't be 100% filled. But I went to Louisiana Tech. You know, I'd become an engineer. <clears throat> then Vietnam came along. 
uh, it's interesting what happened uh, when I I went to graduate school. When you, when I went to graduate school at the University of Texas in Austin, uh, a graduate school would get you a student deferment from the draft. But um, the first year I was there, they changed the rules. Said, "Yeah, we'll give you a student deferment for, for graduate school, but only for one year." So <laughs> after the first year, I didn't. And of course, the one year wasn't enough to finish my master's degree. So. After one year, my wife and I, got, you know, Sherry and I, got married and went. We moved back to all. Went back to Austin, and I was re-enrolled in the summer uh, term. And next thing I know, I'm one A in the draft, and I appealed the one A to my home board, just not expecting to be successful, but just ex- wanting to buy some time to figure out what to do. <clears throat> I was not resisting going in the military. I was mainly just wanting to finish my master's degree before I did. So next thing I know, I'm 2S again. I mean, just in a, a few weeks, they, they accepted my appeal and gave me a 2S deferment for school, and I thought, that's odd, but, hey, I'll take it, you know. Two, a month later, I was 1A again. And I, will, <laughs> I, will, I will forever believe that that was a mistake on their part. It was probably just a clerical error on their part, but it was one of the luckiest things that ever happened to me because in the meantime, I had found out I had I had, under, I had uh, learned a lot about the appeal process, and I learned that you didn't have to appeal to your home board. You could appeal to the board of your residence. So Austin, Texas, with 30,000 students at the university there and a lot of uh, left-wing anti-war hippie types, they had a backlog of appeals, of a, a one-year backlog of appeals at the Austin Draft Board. So mm. the second time around, when I got my appeals process all over again, when they made me 2S, 1A again, I appealed to the Austin board instead of to my home board, and I never heard from them again. That I enrolled in the fall semester. I got my coursework done. I went to see the Air Force recruiter downtown, uh, passed some aptitude tests for pilots. They were only accepting pilots and meteorologists at the time, so I wasn't a meteorologist, so I had to be either be a pilot or, or an enlisted man. And so I went to... Um, um, they sent me out to Bergstrom Air Force Base to get a physical, flight physical, and pass that somehow. And, and they lined me up to go to officer training in San Antonio and then pilot training. And uh, so that's how I ended up in the Air Force. I felt like I needed to fly just because I needed the money for the flight. <laughs> flight. That was really more it than anything else. I, I can understand that. All right, Matt, now, uh, you can mention a couple of planes that you trained on, but you ended up on the Caribou. And I want you to uh, explain your training just a little bit, and then get into the Caribou, and tell us about your training on that in Abilene, plus what the instructor said about the weather. Okay, we I, in pilot training, I we flew three airplanes. The first one was a T forty one, basically a Cessna one seventy two, and you know only for about a month, and just to I think it just kind of separate people who had the aptitude from those who didn't. Uh, then we moved to a, um, a subsonic jet trainer, the T-37. I did okay on that. I didn't have any particular problems. I'm not a athletically skilled person. I'm not a person who has uh, who learns physical skills very quickly and uh, not not a big eye-hand coordination kind of guy. But um, so I went into T-38s, and which is a supersonic jet trainer for the last six months. And I did okay on the first phase of the training, which was instrument. You were in the back seat under the bag, and you couldn't look, you couldn't see anything. You just were along for the ride until you got out into the 
practice area, and then you would practice uh, maneuvers under the bag using instruments only. Then we got into the second phase of training, and it was basically what they call contact phase, which was eye-hand coordination, learning to land the airplane, to do maneuvers in the airplane by visual cues only, uh, mostly. And uh, I flunked my my check ride, and I flunked a second check ride, and I flunked a third check ride. And I was on, I was going I was had one more check ride. I was gonna be on the way to navigator school, and. Um, uh, but I finally got enough practice doing what I was what I was failing to do properly was the heavyweight single engine landing, and I had it early in my training and when I was still under the bag I had been sitting number one for takeoff one day and one of my classmates went in in the final turn killed him and his instructor both mm. in practicing a heavyweight single engine landing so I never related those two things until way after I got out of the Air Force. I always thought it was just my eye-hand coordination thing, but it's possible, I guess, that the that the seeing that fatal accident happen might have um, you know made me uh, nervous or uncertain or whatever about heavyweight single engine landings. But at any rate, um, I went in for this final check ride, which they called a ninety-nine ninety-nine ride, and. Um, uh, so I went in, and the guy who was going to check ride was going to be the chief of standardization. So I went in, Lieutenant Gravel reporting, sir, and he says, Gravel, huh? And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> I didn't know what he was up to or what he was referring to. He says, Gravel, huh? You're not related to Sam Gravel, are you? And I said, yes, sir. That's my my older brother. He said, yeah, Sam and I flew F-4s together in Vietnam. Wow. So he kind of put, he kind of put me at ease and... And uh, by then, I had had enough practice doing what I was uh, having trouble with that I, I, I scored something like a 96 or 98 on the ride and, and moved on from there without any other significant difficulties. After that, we went into some much more difficult stuff like uh, four-ship trail formation, doing loops and things like that. And, um, and it was, um, you know, I, I didn't have any particular problem. But because of that poor start I had in the 38. I was not number one in the class by any means, and so I ended up with the guys at the very bottom of the class got P-52s. I was very high in academics, um, and but I was low in flying skills, so my net score was somewhere below middle, and I got the caribou, which I'd never heard of a caribou before, and most people in the Air Force hadn't at that time because it had just been transferred over from the Army in January 67. So at any rate, uh, they sent me to Caribou School, one of the luckiest things that ever happened to me. A great airplane, and uh, it it one of the elements of it was in most airplanes that you fly, you might get one or two takeoff and landings in a day. In Caribou, we would take off 8, 10, 12, sometimes 16 times a day because wow. we were because we were landing and taking off little short sorties, 20-minute, 30-minute, 45-minute sorties. If we if we flew from Cameron Bay down to Benoit, it would take an hour or an hour and 15 minutes or something like that. If we flew to Bangkok, it might take three or four hours. But the vast majority of our sorties were very, very short, less than an hour. And so you got a lot of landing takeoff practice. And so for me, who my nature is I have to have a lot of practice on these physical things. I got pretty good at it because I just got this vast amount of practice. I just now, un- did you un- did you think that your training on the caribou? You you think your training was more than effective and efficient, right? Yeah, the training was good, and and we went over there perfectly competent. We we were, in fact, the lieutenant 
lieutenant pilots over there were as good as as the uh, most of the senior pilots because the Caribou's were not operated in the Air Force in the United States except for training. They were not. There were no operational squadrons in the United States because they had just switched over from the Army. And so all of our higher ranking, the, the captains came mostly from 141s. The the majors and lieutenant colonels and colonels came from B-58s, a program that had just been shut down. So none of those guys had had their ticket punched for Vietnam. So all the B-58 guys had to go to Vietnam. They put them in a caribou. And we had B-52 people. We had C-141 people. We had B-58 people, a lot of B-58 people. And so we had the lieutenants got a lot more flying experience in the caribou than most of the higher-ranking officers. And that was kind of an interesting twist. An interesting now, one, of your, one of your instructors, one of your instructors said, you're going to be shot at everything, but what did he say is probably yeah. going to kill you in Vietnam? Tell me about that. Yeah, the guy, in, my instructor in, uh, in Caribou at, at Dias Air Force Base in Abilene said, uh, you go to Vietnam, you're going straight to Vietnam from here, you're going to face a lot of challenges. The weather's going to be bad, the, the uh, ground fire, you know, you're going to have maintenance problems, you're going to have crazy people on the airplane, you're going to have cows and stuff that won't stay still, you're going to have... All these things are going to happen to you, but the thing that's most likely to give you trouble is the weather. He said it's going to create it's going to create uh, uh, constraints and limitations on what you can do that are going to you know be uh, they're going to put you, put stresses on you as a pilot that you wouldn't have otherwise. And I think to some extent he was right. Now earlier in the war, when there was a lot more shooting going on. Uh, there might, that might have been not have been true, but in my, in my time of the war, that was very true. We had uh, one uh, typhoon evacuation out of Cameron Bay, where one of our airplanes uh, that something malfunctioned on the compass, and the guy ended up about 200 miles out in the ocean before he realized where he was. He was just trying to go down to Benoit, you know, <laughs> and uh, and so there, it was there. There were some serious uh, weather difficulties there, but. You know, you learn to deal with it. Usually, if the weather was good over the land, it'd be bad over the water, and vice versa. So, if you didn't, yeah. if you didn't, if you most a lot of places you were going because Vietnam is a long, narrow country, you could get to the water, get over the water if you needed to. And uh, so, there were you just learned to deal with all these problems. Yeah. All right, you. Uh, 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 I'm going to tell the folks also. We're only going to have one break today, and that's going to be at the half hour mark. So we've got a little bit more time today. All right, right, Alan, when did you arrive in Vietnam? Where were you stationed, and what unit? I was was assigned to the 536 uh, Tactical Airlift Squadron in Cameron Bay. It was part of the 483rd Tactical Airlift Wing, Uh, the two sister squadrons, the 535th and 36th, and then we had the 457th and 58th, and so we had four squadrons there. My good friend, who I met at Dias in Abilene, and then we went through survival school together, and this and the other. We had got, had become pretty good friends. He was supposed to go to Phuket, and I was going to go to Cameron Bay. So we thought we wouldn't probably see much of each other through the year. He got to Phuket, and they tell him they told him, "Don't even unpack your bags. Uh, check in the BOQ tonight, and catch a hop to Cameron Bay tomorrow because we're shutting this squadron down." And so he, the next night, he knocked on the door, my hooch, and we became. Uh, uh, roommates for the year and one of the greatest things that happened because he was a great he's a great guy a good pilot a great companion to have around and we we were uh we had a we had a good time fixing up the, our hooch and all that kind of stuff we did over there but we were so all four squadrons for the year i was there the 
536, my squadron had just moved up from Bunktow a few months before. And so they had consolidated all four squadrons uh, at Cameron Bay right before we were there. But we had a one-week uh, TDY, that we, a temporary duty thing we did out of Benoit, where we would fly out of Cameron Bay when they take our clothes and stuff with us, fly a day's worth of sorties, uh, recover in Benoit. They would go. We had quarters that were assigned to us because we were there off and on all the time. And then we'd fly two days out of Benoit to have a day off. And then we'd fly two more days out of Benoit and then fly out of Benoit and recover back at Cameron Bay. So you had a seven, what we call a seven-day stage. And uh, you'd get one day off in the middle. Uh, we did the same thing in Canto, but it was a three-day deal, and we didn't have the day off. That was pretty cool for us out of Cameron Bay because Cameron City was closed. We couldn't go into the local community. Uh, we had to stay on base. So, um, but when we went to Benoit, we had the day off. We could catch a taxi cab into Saigon, go to the USO. I made a couple of Mars uh, phone calls home to my wife, and we could you could go shopping, eat at a restaurant, and you know, sort of see another side of the of Vietnam that you hadn't seen before. And at Canto, we lived in in a civilian hotel in in the town, so it was different from being in Cameron Bay, where you you couldn't go off base. Yeah. Anyway, those what month? Two what, uh, what? Yeah, Alan. What month and year did you arrive in Vietnam? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, early September '70, and okay. almost exactly a year. And so I left in early September of eight of '71. Okay. Now I want you to describe some of the airfields you serviced for the folks listening in, like uh, Doc Peck and a couple of other ones. Tell, tell us about some of those airfields. Okay. We. I, we, we, we were told over there that the Caribous flew into 75 different airfields that no other fixed-wing cargo airplane went into. Now, your Dick Bickerton that was on your program last week, he, he talked about the otters and the way they resupplied these little forward um, bases, and that's true. But we were there in much, much bigger numbers than the otters were. And um, we basically flew supplies from the big bases out to the little forward bases. And by big bases, I mean sometimes it was Cameron Bay or Benoit or Saigon, but sometimes it was Bami Tuit or Pleiku or these sort of medium-sized fields that were that were pretty civilized, but uh, but uh, not right out on the border. You know? But we would we flew into all the little forward uh, uh, artillery bases and uh, special forces camps that were out along the border, and. Like I said, they told us we flew into 75 fields. Now, the Caribou people have told me, the Caribou Association people have told me that there were only about 15 fields that were categorized as uh, Type 1 for for Caribous, and, and basically no, no other airplane went in there. But And that's true. But the, the, the practical speak, practically speaking, we went into a, a lot of fields that, uh, say, a C-123 could go into if it had to, but they just routinely did not, you know. So, anyway, in 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 uh, Vietnam, there were air, all the airfields were categorized as Category 1, Category 2, or Category 3. Category 1, Category 3 was the big, big fields like Saigon, Benoit, Cameron Bay, you know, 10,000, 15,000 feet of, of concrete runway, 150 feet wide, something like that. Uh, the minimum size field, Pleiku, Bami Tuit, uh, places like that might be, uh, Ben Tui might be uh, four or 5,000 feet of uh, concrete or asphalt runway or something like that. Then the Category 1 or Type 1 fields were the, the most forward, uh, smallest fields, a couple thousand feet of dirt or a straight section in a road somewhere or 
or um, or um, what they call PSP. It was a steel planking that was put down to sort of reinforce yeah. this uh, PSP runways. And uh, so we would fly. We flew basically the supplies from all the bigger and medium-sized fields into those little forward fields. And the the, the shortest runways were in the thousand-foot range, something like that. Thousand feet, wow. forty feet. We we routinely we could we could operate into that with no difficulty at all at full load capacity going in. If you were coming out of a forward field uh, of that length and you had a full load, that would, that would be a little dicier. You could probably do it, but it would be a little dicier. Uh, yeah. But we went into all the fields out on the boats, uh, Lockman, Song Bay, Doc Peck, up in, up north, north of Pleiku, that was the, were the most uh, forward fields and probably the most, uh, that were most under control or were closest to the, to the enemy, basically. Doc Peck, Doc wow. Chang, and uh, those up there. The, the biggest loss of life in Caribou's happened in April of 70 before I got there in September, uh, where they were resupplying a, a Ford, uh, a special forces camp in, um, at Doxiang. And in three days, they lost three airplanes and 11 crew members. And they, wow. they shut down, had to stand down, re, re, uh, set the, the tactics and changed their tactics and, and they supplied the base for 69 more days without any further losses but uh, that was the biggest loss of life in fact uh, uh, Atlanta Vietnam Veterans Business Association did a memorial for a guy named Julius Patrick Yeager it's at Lenox Mall area and uh, he was the last uh, aircraft commander killed in Vietnam in, in Caribou yeah. but these were, these these runways some of them were long enough, like for instance, Doc Chang. It was a long enough runway, and it was wide enough. It wasn't that, one. but it had this ski slope profile to it that it, where it crossed the road. There was a road that crossed the middle of the runway or went into the runway. Where it crossed the road was the low spot, and then it, it sloped up pretty steeply to the other end, and then back down. And so, it, supposedly, if you had a caribou sitting in that low spot, a caribou at the other end who was commencing a takeoff run could not see the caribou in the hole so we <laughs> we we would uh and the caribou was 47 feet tall too so uh we we would we would routinely there be one plane one airplane on the ground at a time that's that's the rule we usually followed in these forward bases every once in a while it'd be different from that but uh we make an exception to it but frequently it'd be one airplane on the ground at a time and Sometimes that was even written into the uh, aerodrome directory. We we carried a, a little book called Aerodrome Directory that had a page for each runway, basically, and it told you everything you need to know about the runway, what how wide it was, how long it was, the, the uh, exact coordinates of it, the uh, the surface type, and all about security and all that kind of stuff. So whenever you went into a place that you were not familiar with, you get that book out and read all about it before you went in. And um, but there were so they were type one, type two, type three. A type one field for a caribou might be a type two for C one twenty three. Might be be a, 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 a I mean a, a, a category type two for a caribou might be a type one for a C one twenty three, and it might be even prohibited for C one thirty. I only saw a C one thirty land at one of these four bases one time in the whole year I was over there, and wow. uh, that it was uh, the C one thirties were. Mostly landing at these medium-sized fields, Bamikuit and and Pleiku and and Bintui and places like that, and we wow. landed at the 
the 123s and the C7s landed these Category 1 fields. There were also Type 1 restricted fields, which uh, Doc Peck was an example of that, where you had to, an instructor pilot had to take you there. And if you were a fully qualified aircraft commander, you had to go with an instructor pilot to that airfield, and he would teach you how to land at that particular airfield because there was some kind of peculiar requirement. And Doc hmm. Peck was a good example of that. Uh, the, the yeah, by, landing... by the way, by the way, yeah, Alan, uh, briefly, because we've got a uh, break here coming in five minutes, but briefly tell the folks, describe a caribou to the people who don't know about a caribou, and then go ahead and tell us about your landing approach to these places, because you could be fired upon, and you had a very special landing yeah. approach. Okay, go ahead. The the caribou was a short takeoff and landing, about thirty thousand pound airplane. It was about six or eight feet wide inside, eight feet wide, and it could. I, I carried a Toyota Cressida one time. It was tight, but I got it in there. So <laughs> that that's a size. That's about the size of the cargo part. We could carry about twenty troops in our troop seats, and then we fold them up against the wall and carry cargo mostly. But uh, we 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 had a had a tailgate opening thing in the back like a C one thirty does, and you'd roll stuff off. The bottom had roll the, the floor had rollers in it, so you could roll pallets of, uh, of, of cargo off. And um, and we had tw- it was two engines, uh, one engine on each wing, R two thousand Pratt and Whitney R two thousand radial piston engine, and um, we we flew mostly ten thousand feet or less. We were not pressurized. And we didn't have oxygen, so we would fly 10,000 feet or less. Mostly we flew just above ground fire, which is about 3,000 feet above the ground, which might be, you know, four or 5,000 feet, depending on the mountainous terrain and all that. But, um, it was a, we, we flew with the windows open. It was a, it was a, um, it was a good airplane, very ruggedly built. It was, it was built by de Havilland more or less to be a, um, a bush airplane in Alaska and up north. It's, it was that kind of airplane, really rugged uh, landing gear, and uh, extreme movement of the of the flaps. You could put the flaps down; the interior flaps on the back surface would be ninety degrees to the ground. And so it was a it was a great airplane for short takeoff and landing. And we didn't carry the biggest loads in the world. C one thirty could do, you know make one trip where we had to make ten, but. Um, but we, where we could go with it was amazing, and the 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 ability of the airplane to land. You could, you if you were when you were making a landing approach, you we would come in around generally around three thousand feet above the ground to avoid ground fire until we got over the base. We'd slow down as slow as we could to minimize the amount of energy the airplane had, and basically with the engines in idle, and then roll off and do a spiraling turn down to. Uh, basically a landing pattern altitude, 800 to 1,000 feet. And you had to put the throttles up just a little bit to reset the propellers for, for a go-around in case you had, a, had to go around. But then you pulled the throttles back to idle. And you could basically land the airplane after you tra- practice for a while. You could land the airplane with no throttle at all and just uh, bring it in, land it, and put it on the ground. Then once you're on the ground, nose gears down, push the throttles up and back and you get reverse thrust on the propellers and you'd learn to stop that way with the brakes and the and the reverse thrust on the propellers. At Doc Peck it was an interesting situation. It was a it was a type 1 restricted. So you flew downwind on a, a 800 or 1000 feet above the ground, but you were looking straight over at a mountain and you couldn't see the runway. Most of the time you're on downwind, you couldn't see the runway. 
And so you'd reach the point where there was this large, one large dead tree that you learned to recognize. And you, when you got to that point, you turned 45 degrees to the left, and you'd be on like a 45 to find to to your uh, final turn. And you you drive the uh, at that 45 degree angle until you were over, and you start descending. Then, then you drive until you got over this little creek, and you turn 90 degrees to the left. Now you're 45 degrees to the runway center line, and you're de- you're continuing to descend and Somewhere along there, you start to see the end of the runway, and then right <laughs> over the end of the runway, you 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 turn the final forty five degrees to the runway alignment and put it down. And uh, it was not a particularly short runway, but it was had a serious amount of slope to it, and you had mountains on both sides. So if the wind was a, blowing as a crosswind, you could have crosswind from the left, crosswind from the right, crosswind from the left, all in one rollout. And it was it was a very uh, challenging and uh, exciting sort of place to land the airplane. Uh, exciting is a good word for it. Okay, folks, we're going to a first and only break today. Uh, we'll be back with uh, Alan Gravel, uh, Caribou Pilot in Vietnam. Stay with us. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and, and want to make an I'll even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army with training in fields like medical care, linguistics, right and engineering, and Army career can yeah, amplify three, your three, efforts with humanitarian that. opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back from Alan Gravel, Caribou Pilot Vietnam. Tell us about the Caribou that landed at the wrong place, and then a Sikorsky S-64 Sky Crane uh, had to go get it. Tell us what happened. Uh, this was somewhere down in the Parrots Beak area. I don't recall exactly the location, uh, uh, but it was in the Parrots Beak area, and there was a, it was a, the aircraft commander was a lieutenant colonel. I kind of felt sorry for those guys because they didn't get to fly enough. But one of the problems you had in Vietnam was you. So many of the runways looked the same. They were a little straight section of the road, or the you know just a little uh, strip in the dirt in the, in the middle of the uh, jungle. And so they had each of each firebase was they would the, the way the army did it. Each firebase had a separate shape. There would be five five pointed stars, six pointed stars, squares. Uh, 
triangles that had all kinds of shapes, and they each each fire base had a different shape, so you'd be able to tell one from the other. Well, this guy landed by mistake at a field that was closed, actually, <laughs> and I guess I, I'm guessing that just when they touched down, they realized what they had done. So there was a turnoff area. Uh, not all these runways had turnoff areas. Sometimes we had to just back up or, or, or turn around in the space of the runway if it was wide enough. But uh, this guy turned off into the into the offloading ramp area to uh, to do it. Basically, turn the airplane around and take back off because he realized he was in an unsecure, you know, abandoned field. Unfortunately, he turned too sharply, and the landing gear went into the ditch. And it damaged the landing gear and basically disabled the airplane. So they scrambled around and went, took the wings off the airplane, took the engines off, took the wings off, and rigged it up to try to pick the fuselage up and take it out with a, a sky crane and got lifted it up you know, 50 or 100 feet or whatever it was, and, and the, the, the rigging broke and dropped the airplane. And what they call Class 26 did, it was total loss. <laughs> I told the story in my book. I, I wrote the story, and the, the caribou people said that this is not in the official records. Uh, there was a, <laughs> there was a there was an earlier case of a sky crane dropping a caribou that happened before you got there, but this is not in the official records. Well, I know this happened. This and we, it was the talk <laughs> of the whole quadrant for months, you know, uh, for at least, at least weeks. And I think I personally think that they they covered up this whole deal because somebody didn't want their name associated with it and whether that's the aircraft commander or the army maintenance people that sent the sky crane out there whoever it was they just decided this airplane never existed or something but anyway we know what happened but it, even yeah. even if it didn't i mean even, even if you take it as being fiction uh it had happened before and so this it, it was it's not like it couldn't have happened you know it, it, yeah it was, it, but <laughs> you uh, mentioned the tell us what a maintenance alert was each day, one crew in the wing, we had four squadrons, and so one crew in the wing would sit what they call maintenance alert. And you'd go out and pre-flight an airplane and just sit around and wait for something to happen in one of the, at one of the forward fields. And the idea was that you would take your airplane, if something happened, you would fly your airplane out to the location, give your airplane to the crew that had, had the problem, and they would continue on with their mission. And uh, then... Um, you would wait around. The, the maintenance people would be on your airplane, so they they had to take all their tools and parts and things out there, and, and and you would wait for them to fix the airplane, and you'd fly it back to Cameron Bay. So I was in one the one time I sat maintenance alert. I was at Cameron Bay, and we were there uh, mid morning or something. A helicopter, a Vietnamese helicopter, got into the t- the rudder of a caribou at Ducklap, and oh. which is out on the border. Uh, uh, west of, of Cameron Bay. And so uh, we loaded up a new rudder and this tripod lifting device they used to rig up on the thing and all the tools and mechanics and everything. Fortunately, the helicopter did not get into the fixed part of the vertical stabilizer, and, and so it was just a matter of swapping the rudder out, and you were good to go. So we, we flew out there with all these parts, unloaded, gave our airplane to the other crew. They took off and continued their mission. And we sat there, waited while the maintenance people swapped the rudder. And by the end of the day, they got it done, and we got on the airplane, flew back to Cameron Bay. While I was sitting there, sitting around, there was this young African-American uh, 
uh, Greenberry guy, special forces guy that had, was an advisor with a group of Montagnard special force people, and uh, they had about fifteen of them or something. And we got we struck up a conversation, and um, he said they had been waiting there for three days for transport to the Fifth Special Forces headquarters in the train, and they couldn't. You know, they kept promising them, and we'll get you a helicopter tomorrow or whatever, and they never, nothing ever came. And I said, well, I don't know how you feel about flying on an airplane that's just been worked on, but if you if you don't have any reservations about that, y'all can get on the airplane with us, and we'll take you in a train on the way back to Cameron Bay. And he said, oh, that'd be great. So he called his headquarters somehow and talked to them, and they approved it. So when we got our airplane fixed, they got on the airplane with us with all our parts and uh, all that and the mechanics and everything that we had carried out there. And uh, we, we went, of course, we had to go right behind the train to get to Cameron Bay. It was like, you know, just a five-minute stopover. And uh, we dropped them off and then went on to Cameron Bay. It was pretty cool, actually. <laughs> okay. Uh, you never shut down the caribou. You kept the engines running. But uh, you did shut it down on Christmas Day, 1970. Tell us about yeah. that. And also, we you flew the caribou. There's also something around Christmas time called the Santa Booth. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah, we we shut down. We hardly ever shut down at forward fields. We would shut down, obviously, at the main bases back at Cameron Bay and, and uh, even a place like Bandme to it or Pleiku or whatever. Someplace that was reasonably secure, we'd shut it down. But most of the time, we didn't shut down. Or maybe, Sometimes we'd just shut down one engine and, and, and let the offloading occur with the other engine idling or something. But... Uh, Christmas morning of 1970, I was on the seven-day stage out of Benoit. I was still a co-pilot at the time, and uh, we were. I was flying the seven-day stage out of Benoit, and so we were. Our first sortie was up the Digimop, right on the border, right almost due north of Benoit, and so about maybe 45-minute flight flight from uh, Benoit up the Digimop, and so. That on Christmas Day, 1970, each of the squadrons had a, a caribou painted with a Santa, a Santa Claus face on the front of the airplane, and it was pretty cool looking. Actually, the way they did it, it was interesting, and it was a good, a, a, worth a good laugh for for everybody who saw it. But we we left about light. It was a very uh, cloudy, gloomy sort of uh, foggy morning, and we we left Benoit and just about light and and headed up toward Digimop. And so we're going up in that, headed up maybe 15 or 20 minutes from Digimop, and I tuned the radio over onto Digimop frequency. They didn't have air traffic control per se, but they had a guy on the ground with an Army uh, Fox Mike FM radio that would uh, that we could talk to to just make sure everything was secure and all that before we landed and also to coordinate unloading of the airplane. So um, I just turned the FM radio over to his frequency, uh, which you could get out of the airdrome directory, by the way. And uh, and I didn't say anything. I just listened to see what was going on before I made contact with him. And so I heard that they had this, this airplane uh, that was painted, that was the Santa Claus base, they called it. The, the, our, our call sign was Iris, and our mission numbers were like 416, 412, 422, 420, like that. And so he that day that the caribou that was uh, painted up was uh, was using the call sign Santa Boo. So while I'm listening to the uh, that frequency, Santa Boo calls in and says, Digimop, Santa Boo, inbound for landing. And, uh, and the guy on the ground, 
he got spooked by it, and I don't think he realized what was going. On. Well, he, I knew he didn't realize what was going on. He he said, uh, "Roger, Roger, Santa Boo. And so, a few minutes later, I called in and said, "Digimop, this is Iris four sixteen inbound for landing." He says, "Roger, Iris." Then he says, "Iris, did you hear somebody on this frequency a few minutes ago?" <laughs> and I know what was going on in his head. He thought he. He thought his brain was playing tricks on him or something, and I said, "Well, yeah, they're 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 inbound. You're gonna get ready for a party because they're gonna put on a party for you." So they would have on board the Santa Boo. They had three or four uh, donut dollies, which you know American girls who were serving over there. We call them round eyes, and uh, these guys in the field, believe me, they hadn't seen a round eye in months, <laughs> and so uh, and they had like punch and cookies and eggnog and all kinds of Christmassy stuff. And they had a little ditty bag thing for each of the guys who came, uh, who were in the fire base, um, a little Christmas gift type thing. And, um, so they, they would, they made the rounds on Christmas day with those four airplanes, one for each squadron. They've made the rounds to, uh, probably eight or 10 of these forward bases each, uh, trying to basically spread some Christmas cheer to these poor guys who were out in the, in the woods there who hadn't seen civilization in months, you know. And uh, well, you, anyway, that you was shut a, that. Yeah, that day you shut yeah. down your caribou. Why did you shut we, it down? They, they had they had they got there before we did and landed, and so we shut down. We, you know, it was. I asked the guy on the ground. I said, "Is, is y'all have any any activity or whatever?" He said, "No, it's, it's pretty quiet today." So. We, we pulled up and shut down, and another caribou pulled up and shut down. I've got the pictures of the three of us inside. <laughs> and uh, we went over and had some punch and cookies and talked to the round-eye girls and this, that, and the other. And then, of course, we had other things we had to do, so we went ahead and cranked our airplane up and, and, and left. And uh, I've got a picture of us as we took off looking down on the caribou. He was still on the Santa Boo. He was still there. But yeah, uh, I, I imagine if you were a picture of Santa Boo on the back book. I love that. I would imagine if you were an artillery guy and that happened to you, you'd probably remember that the rest of your life. But I have not seen it mentioned much. Uh, there was a there was a history done of the of the donut dollies a few years ago, kind of a video thing done, and, and it was there was nothing in it about that there. So I've, I've been sort of surprised that no more people than have. Uh, and when the Atlanta History Center did their thing on Vietnam a few years ago, um, um, their exhibit called um, "More Than Self," I, I, I submitted that picture and the story that went with it, and they had that as a part of their exhibit. But anyway, it was an interesting little sidelight to things that happened in a war zone that wouldn't happen anywhere else. You know? Yeah, you uh, of course you were featured in my first book also, and. Uh, Santa Boo, painted up for Christmas, is on the back of my first book. I love the photo of that uh, airplane as the Santa Boo. It, it's just it's yeah. remarkable. American ingenuity. I, I love it, too. I've got office. <laughs> <laughs> you completed your uh, tour in Vietnam with the Santa Boo, but I want to move on. You went back to the States, and you were retrained with a new aircraft, the KC-135 Stratotanker the mid-air refuters of the Air Force, and you returned to the war. Tell us about the KC-135 refuters and you going back to war. Yeah, we, 
we got home from Vietnam in September 71 and took a month of leave to go visit family and friends and everything, kind of reestablish a relationship with our families. And, and then we went to uh, Castle Air Force Base in Merced, California, for tanker training <clears throat> starting in about October. Um, we trained through the winter, got done in about March, I guess, and uh, I was assigned to go to, Bur- uh, to Barksdale Air Force Base in Shreveport, Louisiana. And my buddy, my roommate in Vietnam, my caribou buddy, was he was uh, assigned to McCoy in Florida, in Orlando. And so <clears throat> we um, we got there, I think, around the end of March, and at the first on the first of May. Uh, this was 1972, so the, the Easter offensive had just happened, or was happening, and they uh, mobilized five squadrons of, care, of uh, tankers to go, well, they called them provisional squadrons, to go over, and we were at Clark Air Base in the Philippines, I think there was one at Udorn, maybe one at Takli, one at Ubon, maybe Utapau in, Th- in Thailand, and, uh, they were, but anyway, there were five of these provisional squadrons that were created to go furnish uh, refueling services for the, the aircraft that were supporting the South Vietnamese during the Easter Offensive in 72. So we went to Clark. We stayed there about five months. I rotated. They couldn't keep you on the, on the TDY, temporary duty thing, more than six months. So at five and a half months, they rotate you home for 28 days and then send you back. So we had a, a lot of rain in, in the Philippines in, in June of, of 72. So washed out the pipeline down to Subic, the Navy base, where we got fuel from. So when we, we, we rotated home from Clark in the Philippines and rotated back to CCK in Taiwan, they had moved the whole operation up there. We would fly to Vietnam from either location. We flew to Vietnam, set up in what they call Purple Anchor, north of Da Nang. It was a basically a racetrack pattern from about up, up a radial north of Da Nang, which is back out over the South China Sea from about 30 miles up to about 90 miles. So you'd fly 60 miles out, turn around, fly 60 miles back, turn around, fly 60 miles out, turn around, fly 60 miles back, and you do that over and over and over again until some what we call chicks, but basically uh, people needing fuel, mostly F-4s, uh, but they would come up and <clears throat> request, you know, make contact with the tanker that was in the, in the uh, anchor, <clears throat> in purple anchor and uh, arrange to, you know, get some fuel and then go back down. Sometimes you see the same guy a couple times. But um, we would refuel at 16,000 feet. There would be another air tanker probably some, most of the time at 20,000 feet and sometimes another one at 24 and, and then a few times maybe at one at 28 when the guy at the bottom at 16,000 uh, reached bingo fuel, the fuel he had to have to get home. He would leave the anchor, and everybody would rack down 4,000 feet to the new altitude. And so the guy at the bottom did most of the refueling. Sometimes you'd have chicks on the tanker at 16,000 and 20,000 uh, at the same time. Um, Alan, I want we, you to tell the folks. Yeah, Alan, tell the folks about the instant uh, you had a shot up F4 Phantom come in for fuel, but he was losing fuel as fast as you could pump it in there. Tell us about that incident. How you got that uh, pilot home? Well, we were at, we were at twenty thousand feet. We were the second tanker. It was the not the low tanker, but the second tanker in uh, at uh, in Purple Anchor one afternoon, mm-hmm. late in the afternoon, and the um, <clears throat> the we the, the, a call came up on Mayday, 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 and guys called sign, and he's uh, shot up and losing fuel 
his airplane was flying fine, but he was just he had holes in his fuel tank and he was losing fuel. So uh, the guy that I was still an air, uh, co-pilot at the time because I had not had uh, I had not accumulated 500 hours in the tanker to, to upgrade. So I was flying with a guy who was an X-105 pilot, and he jumped at the chance of helping this guy. He we turned and went toward the land basically, turned out of the anchor and went straight at this guy. And that's how basically refueling rendezvous are done. You fly straight at the receiver, and then the navigator, based on his radar signature of the of the receiver, he'll tell you when to do a U-turn in front of the guy, and the guy pulls up behind you, hooks up, and takes fuel. So we flew straight at this guy in toward the coast. Uh, he came up. We, we switched over. We got him to squawk uh, an IFF code so we could identify him as uh, friendly. And then we got him on a different frequency so we wouldn't interfere with all the other radio traffic. And he pulled up behind us, but his latch device in the in the receiver in the receiving uh, portal thing wouldn't unlock, and so we had to hold down pressure on him, and he held up pressure on us, which is a, a serious, serious, serious no no in tanker operations. You just didn't do that because the, the potential for an in flight accident was just too much. But we held down. Explain what that was. Uh, Alan, explain to the people what that was. What were you doing? Well, if if, if he's putting pressure up on you, usually you'd be sort of neutralized. Our our nozzle would be latched into his airplane, and it can telescope in and out. And as the two planes move a little bit in relation to each other, the the boom up, the the telescoping of the boom, and the boom can move around to sort of accommodate all that movement so it doesn't put any stress on anything. But if, you, if he's having to hold up pressure on us and we're holding down pressure on him, if something happens in the boom buckles or whatever, then he props he, the front of his airplane probably hits the back of our airplane, the underside of the back of the tanker, something like that happens, and then all hell breaks loose, you know. So uh, it just was not something you're supposed to do. But we did it anyway because it was the only way to get any fuel. And I, I turned on all six pumps. Normally you'd pump for an F-4, you'd pump with two pumps. I turned on all six pumps. We were blowing fuel over back across his canopy and, and uh, down the back of his airplane. Uh, we are probably putting four, four times as much fuel in the air as we were in his airplane. But we were just getting enough past his receptacle thing to replace what he was burning. So we, he stayed hooked up to us, and we dragged him uh, about 30 minutes down to Da Nang. And we we flew right over Da Nang and dropped him off, basically. And he, not dead stick, but he basically, with the little fuel he had in his tank, he got on the ground. And it, I thought it was interesting because, you know, we didn't know the guy. We didn't know where he was from. Had no idea what his name was. Didn't know what unit he was from. Had nothing. We, we knew nothing, but we were sort of locked together for this half an hour or so there. Uh, we left to go back to CCK, and the aircraft commander says, Okay, this did not happen. We didn't do this. Nothing. This is nobody. Don't say a word to anybody about this. This is not. And I thought to myself, this is guy's being a little melodramatic. You know, he's trying to make a big deal out of this. It's, you know, it, I just thought he was being silly. Well, it turns out, forty years later, I heard this story about a tanker who went north from Thailand to pick up an F four who was much more badly damaged than our guy was. He had, had lost an engine. He was losing fuel, and he was. And the tanker went up there, picked him up, and brought him back into Thailand and saved him, basically. And um, when the tanker got back to his base, 
the commander uh, meets him and says, "We're going to court martial you for doing that. You you did you went into North Vietnam. You're not supposed to go into North Vietnam." And um, and so the only thing that saved the tanker crew was that the F four people put him in for a um, Silver Star, and um, they, they these two men ran into each other at, at I think it was the school of the daughter where the daughter one of one of them had a daughter who worked at a school in Seattle or somewhere up in, in that area, and they ran into each other and they 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 discovered each other after, you know years and years later after this and sort of got together and shared the story again. But anyway, I realized then that our AC was probably not being melodramatic that he probably had more of a sense of how the Air Force worked than I did. And that keeping our mouth shut about this was probably the right thing to do because we could very well have been. We, we did a bunch of things that we weren't supposed to do that day, but we saved the <laughs> Yeah, you saved the man and the pilot uh, yeah. and the aircraft. But, uh, yeah, that yeah, that was a major uh, violation that you could have been court-martialed for, but the incident was basically forgotten. Is that correct? Made me, it makes me wonder how many other things. I bet you, I bet you there are thousands of stories like that 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 did not get told because of that reason. You know, they were just things that were done because they needed to be done at the time under the circumstances, but they didn't really, they really weren't in compliance with the rules, you know. So, but I bet you there right. are lots of like that that will never be told. So, yeah, and there, there's so many uh, stories that will never be told, uh, except uh, maybe in some of my writing, maybe on the radio and other radio shows that feature veterans. But uh, uh, out of Okinawa, you lost one KC-135 tanker. Is that correct? Yeah, this this came up. I never knew about this until we, the Atlanta Vietnam Veterans Business Association did our annual memorial at North Georgia College in Dahlonega in 2010. And we were honoring the 29 men who had attended that college who were killed in Vietnam. And one of them was a KC-135 pilot, and his airplane took off out of Okinawa and basically was never seen again. They think that it was probably uh, hit by lightning or something like that, but they, nobody really knows. And I met his family and at that memorial, and uh, very, very fine people, and just it just breaks your heart that they'll never know. They never know what happened to their guy, you know, their son. Yeah, yeah. I read um, what's called the formal pretext on that. It says, the cause unknown, lost over the Pacific. Yeah, yeah. That's heartbreaking. Alan, we have about three minutes left. Uh, Go ahead and give me some closing thoughts about Vietnam, your your service in in Vietnam, your flying career, and uh, uh, your final thoughts on, on the soldiers in Vietnam. Well, I if I tell people I'd do it again. Uh, I think now that we the, the ABBBA had their symposium on the history of the Vietnam War in uh, November of 2019, you can look that up on YouTube if you want to watch it. It's about four hours long, pretty pretty serious historical stuff. But we basically, although we did not occupy the land at the end of the time, uh, we we met we achieved our objective in that we slowed down the spread of communism in that part of the world. And uh, there, there's there's copious evidence that that's what's happened. We paid a hell of a price for it, fifty-eight thousand men and gazillion dollars. But we 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 achieved our objective, and and uh, 
and and so I think all Vietnam veterans should be proud of that. Uh, uh, I started writing my stories for this of, of all this because I didn't want to be forgotten. I wanted my kids and my grandkids to be able to, to read these stories and and so. Uh, uh, in 2019, when the ABBBA uh, published their book, I'm Ready to Talk, I got to talking with Bob Babcock about, uh, he said, you might have enough story to do your book yourself. So anyway, I ended up writing this book called um, uh, Hauling Trash and Passing Gas. And, uh, <laughs> and it, it's available on Kindle and Amazon and all that. If you, you, When you search for it, you have to leave off the two Gs off of hauling and passing, but uh, it, it's... <laughs> find the book but I, I, all these stories that we talked about today and some others and a bunch of others are in there and i think it's inter- it, it's important that those of us who have things have the ability to do this can can put these things in writing so that other people can have i'm proud of what i did in vietnam i think i, I i'm 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 ashamed of what how our country let that uh, era of history end but I, I do contend, and I've, I've said this for 25 years, that we met, we achieved our objective over there, even though we didn't occupy the land at the end, and we millions and hundreds of thousands of people got killed as a result of our bad behavior or our bad acting toward the end there. Um, we did stop the, flow, the spread of communism. We basically delayed it until the whole idea of communism kind of collapsed on its own of its own weight. And they had realized in the Soviet Union and in China that, you know, communism doesn't really work that good. And so uh, they're still trying to export it, but mostly on a political basis, more so than an economic basis. But at any rate, seconds. Uh, Alan, it's a, it's, what, uh, when I, life when was I, on me. Yeah. When I interviewed you, uh, in conclusion to our interview, you stated this. I know it was war. And it may be difficult for people to understand, but I enjoyed my missions, and the caribous are in the tankers. The soldiers in the rice paddies are juggle, and the chicks in the air depend on us to do our jobs correctly so they can continue to do theirs. In my opinion, it's those guys who deserve the recognition and respect. You're talking about the frontline soldiers and the ground founders. That's a, that's a great tribute, Evan. And we are out of time. Great interview, Alan. Thank you so much for telling a little-known story about the caribou in Vietnam. Great airplane, great pilot, great patriot. Thank you much, Alan. Thank you, Pete. Appreciate the help. Thank you. Bye. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.